Ah, well, hey, you guys. How's it going? Oh, yeah, that's pretty good. Well, welcome to my show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. <coughs> yeah, I'm not very professional at the broadcasting or anything like that, but I'm good on everything. Everything. All right. Um, yeah, man. So, uh, yesterday I promised you Barry Lando would be on the show today. That's coming up here in a little while. Barry Lando, author of Web of Deceit, the history of Western complicity in Iraq from Churchill to Kennedy to George W. Bush. And um, I'm more familiar with Lando from, I guess it was a a, uh, a documentary that he did about the first Gulf War. Maybe some articles that he'd written about the first Gulf War. Anyway, he's great on the first Gulf War, and for the last three or four years or so, uh, I've been trying to make it a tradition to interview him every January when the anniversary comes around. Um, but yeah, man, uh, he should be proud. Uh, on the back of the book, it's endorsed by the late, great William Pfaff, Vince Canestraro. I'm not sure who Richard Reeves is. But uh, also Richard Sale, the great investigative reporter for uh, UPI. Does Sale still write stuff? I guess maybe he's retired now. <laughs> I like this quote. You will be convinced that the U.S. was complicit in Saddam's crimes. Uh, yeah. Uh, culpability, thy name is Ronald Reagan. Oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, Barry Lando, he's going to be on the show today to uh, talk about the first Gulf War. And then Gareth is going to be on. Uh, good old Gareth Porter. It's the Scott Horton Interviews Gareth Porter Show. And uh, I'll go ahead and spoil it for you. Uh, Gareth, as always, is uh, Eeyore at his own birthday party. Yeah, man, I don't know, man. Maybe they passed an Iran nuclear deal, but I don't expect for things to get any better at all. Oh, um, here comes a dark cloud. I agree with him. Of course he's right. He's right about everything. Well, almost. I think I remember we made one mistake one time about an Iraq story six years ago or something. But, yeah. Anyway, the heroic Gareth Porter will be back on the show to talk about uh, the Iran deal and, you know, what it all means for the balance of power in the region. What an insane, contradictory, schizophrenic strategy. It's either brilliant, divide and conquer, or completely inept, uncoordinated madness, or both, at the very same time. But we'll figure it out. Uh, and then, yeah, also talk about the bad news. Got tons of bad news to talk about on the show today. Tons of it. Um... But here, a little bit more housekeeping stuff before getting into the show. Stop by the chat room. Well, stop by the website, scotthorton.org. And if you go there, you can find the whole show archives. You can find the interview archives. You can find out how to sign up for the podcast feeds of both. Subscribe to the podcast there, huh? huh? Um, 
Yeah, man. Uh, also, there's a chat room. If you want to join up the chat room, scotthorton.org slash chat. Link's right up there at the top of the page. And uh, yeah, most of the usual suspects are in there this morning. Hey, guys, how's things? And you, too, can join up, complain about stuff, and, uh, you know, talk about El Camino restoration projects or whatever you think is important in the chat room at scotthorton.org slash chat. And then, uh, yeah, there's a button, too, at the top of the page. Donate. And that's how you can help to support this show. If you go there, uh, you can find out all about all the wonderful kickbacks that you get. If you uh, give a one-off donation of fifty, a hundred, or even two hundred dollars, lifetime subscription to listen and think audiobooks there, uh, silver coins, books, audiobooks, all kinds of great things there, um, and then uh, also options if you wish to use uh, Google Wallet or PayPal to send one-off donations or monthly subscription donations. Those are really great. There are a couple of 50s, a couple of 35s. Most of them are uh, 5, 10, 15, $20, $25 a month. Uh, a few come in here, a few come in there, and they really help. So uh, anybody who values this show and would like for it to continue to exist, that's one way that you can help make sure that it does. Because when I think about quitting, I think of things like, yeah, but then why would anybody send me money anymore? I would have to... Replace that money with some more from somewhere else. All right, you got to keep me incentivized. Oh, please. I'm going to keep doing this every day for the rest of my life. For free or otherwise. I can't help it. I'm stuck like this. Hate the wars. Just hate them. Hate the damn government behind them, too. Uh, but it does help when you help. That's scotthorton.org slash donate. Okay, there you go. All uh, right, man. Am I done with all that? Guess I mentioned the website. Oh, you can follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. Follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. You might or might not like it. At Scott Horton Show. Twitter.com slash Scott Horton Show. Okay, there you go. All right. So very little time left for this segment. I guess um, uh, the subject I have the least to say about today would be uh, domestic policing criminal justice stuff as far as that goes. So here goes. Uh, there's an article in the New Yorker today that's attacking the documentary Making a Murderer. It's a worthwhile read. I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but I think they make some pretty good points. I mean, I didn't think it was an objective documentary, did you? And I didn't think that when the ladies who made it said it was objective that, oh, it was objective. Clearly it was not. That, you know, still has value. Uh, I agree they shouldn't pretend it's objective, but I don't think anybody really believes them that it is. Again, even the title of the thing is Making a Murderer. It's pretty clear they think that he was made a murderer, not that he actually was one. Uh, but anyway, all that aside, I think there's plenty to discuss as far as journalism, as far as the actual guilt or innocence of the two accused in the case, as far as whether or not they got fair trials, which is a separate question from whether they actually did it or not, and all these things. There's tons to discuss there. But here's the part that I thought was the most enlightening from the New Yorker piece that I would like to share with you. Of course, part of their point is that the story, even according to the uh, the ladies that made it, the directors of the film... It was not supposed to be just all about Avery and uh, his nephew here, Dassey. Uh, it's supposed to be about the system itself. 
when I was ranting about the show, that was what I got out of it was, come on, man, when the cameras aren't on, this is how the sausage is made. All day, every day, the judges, the cops, and the prosecutors working together to kidnap and incarcerate people, whether they did it or not. That's how they do it. That's what it is. That's what the state is. It's a conspiracy of people with power to take your stuff from you, including your liberty, if they can get away with it, which they can. That's the story of the damn movie. That's the point, right? Is that it doesn't matter whether Avery did it or not. It doesn't matter to the cops, the prosecutors, or the judge whether he did it or not. I mean, it matters to justice, but it doesn't matter to the government whether he did it or not. But anyway, so, Blam, here's the point uh, where I shut up and read to you. While every story is dramatic, every component of it is sadly common. 72. Listen with your ears and imagine the numbers in your mind's eye if you can while I say them. 72% of wrongful convictions involve a mistaken eyewitness. 27%, 27% involve false confessions. Nearly half involve scientific fraud or junk science. More than a third involve suppression of evidence by police. Um, and then it goes on. There's, there's more to be read here, but I'm out of time. But I really, you know, it's important that people understand just how messed up everything is instead of presuming the legitimacy of the system. It's not legitimate. So you're a libertarian, and you don't believe the propaganda about government awesomeness you were subjected to in fourth grade. You want real history and economics. Well, learn in your car from professors you can trust with Tom Woods's Liberty Classroom. And if you join through the Liberty Classroom link at scotthorton.org, we'll make a donation to support The Scott Horton Show. Liberty Classroom, the history and economics they didn't teach you. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at darrenscoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. Darren'sCoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. Darren'sCoffee.com. Oh, you guys might not want to follow me on Twitter. I'm all blasphemy all the time. Well, this guy Franklin that I follow just tweeted out that the special editions, the Star Wars special editions, are now almost, I guess a year off, almost as old as the original Star Wars was when the special editions were released. And then I counted on my fingers, and then he was right. Well, he's off by a year. But yeah. From 77 to 97? And then from 97 to 2017 would be the equivalent distance through space-time. My God. I'm not sure if I've wasted my life or not. I mean, I guess I seems all right, you know. It's just crazy to think of that much time going by in in such a blink. The the uh, original twenty years, the first half of that time period, there took a lot longer than the second. 
I'm still 39 for another few months, but jeez, man, it's just making my brain explode, dude. You're good at comprehending stuff like that. I can still do a frontside rock, and I ain't too old yet. All right. Ugh. Um. Okay, tons to cover. Man, I got tons to cover here. Uh, what time is it? Yeah, I got time. To at least get started in this. No, I don't. I'll save this for the second hour. Yeah, this will be the second hour, because I'm going to need more time. I'm going to need probably two segments for this. Okay, so I'll do the other stuff. Um, okay, Yemen. Saudi airstrikes destroy Yemen police station. 26 killed. Dozens still trapped under the rubble. Tolls are expected to rise. All day, every day. Uh, oh, now the Telegraph has got this freaking... Hang on, I think I can see it in Chrome. Um... The Telegraph has this piece. U- UK military working alongside Saudi bomb targeters in Yemen war. Saudi foreign minister confirms claim that British military advisors are in operation room of heavily criticized bombing campaign. Uh, Richard Spencer, Middle East editor. This is from January the 15th. British military advisors are in control rooms assisting the Saudi-led coalition staging bombing raids across Yemen that have killed thousands of civilians. The Saudi foreign minister and the Ministry of Defense have confirmed, that is the UK Ministry of Defense have confirmed. The Saudi Air Force, along with the United Arab Emirates and other Gulf allies, have backed the internationally recognized government in Yemen against a rebellion that swept much of the country from the north. But this coalition, uh, that's the way they characterize it. It's sort of kind of right. But not really. But this coalition has been heavily criticized for striking civilian targets. And Britain is under particular fire as major weapons, as a major weapon supplier to the Saudi Air Force. The admission that British officers were working alongside Saudi and other coalition colleagues in the campaign's operation room came in a briefing to the Telegraph and other journalists by the Saudi Foreign Minister Adele Adjubir. We asked a number of allied countries to come and be part of the control center, he said. I know they are aware of the target lists. The Ministry of Defense said that the military officials were not directly choosing targets or typing in codes for the Saudi smart bombs, but confirmed that they were training their counterparts in doing so. We support Saudi forces through long-standing pre-existing arrangements, a spokesman said, adding that the purpose of training was to ensure best practice and compliance with international humanitarian law. Oh, yeah, of course. <sighs> Making sure that they use the utmost care in bombing these civilians to death. Human rights groups claim that more than 3,000 civilians have died since the war began with the attack by the Houthi rebels and forces loyal to former President Ali Abdullah al-Salah in the capital of Sana'a in 2014. Most of those are said to have been from the Saudi-led coalition bombing campaign. As well as human rights groups, Oxfam and other charities have called for Britain to stop arms sales to Britain while the bombing campaign continues. On Sunday, a hospital run by Medicines Sans Frontiers, that is Doctors Without Borders, again, was hit, even though the group says it has provided the coalition with coordinates of its facilities. 
Mr. Jubier, Jubier, I don't know, the Saudi killer, defended the campaign, saying the battle damage assessment showed many of the claims of atrocities were false. He said that cases where civilians were hit were examined, and if mistakes were made, they were acknowledged. This claim is disputed by Human Rights Watch, which has accused the coalition of failing to investigate civilian deaths. However, he did win some support from the group on Wednesday when an HRW report said that a compound housing a school for the blind in Sana, which was struck by a heavily criticized airstrike on January 5th, had been used as a military base by the Houthis. Which I guess is possible, but I don't know about that. Uh, anyway, what's fun about this article is that they don't mention the U.S. Except for the very end, out of context but uh, not in the context of helping the Saudis wage this war this whole time. I'm glad they're implicating the UK, though. Important piece of history here. And again, uh, as the writer confirms, in or I don't know, whatever, he claims it, I guess he could be lying, but he says in this article, this is confirmed by the British Ministry of Defense. After the Saudis said it was so, they went and asked the MOD, and they said, yeah, So, you know, when the war crimes tribunal that never comes, comes, then we'll have to remember. Cameron defends massive UK arms sales to Saudi, an attack on Yemen. Says the Saudis are working on behalf of the legitimate government. Jason Ditz at news.antiwar.com from today the 18th. Today's the 18th, right? Nope, today's the 19th. From yesterday the 18th. I knew that. Well, part of my brain did, but the other part didn't. Cameron defends massive UK arms sales to Saudi attack on Yemen. While a lot of nations' governments are being brought to task by human rights, by human rights groups for their support for Saudi Arabia amid the soaring civilian death toll and their bombing of Yemen, few have shown anywhere near the comfort with continuing their complicity in Saudi actions than British Prime Minister David Cameron did today. Cameron insisted selling arms to Saudi is important to Britain's national security because they're opponents of ISIS <laughs> and cheered their continued attacks on Yemen, saying they are working on behalf of the legitimate government of Yemen. Yeah, they're working on behalf of ISIS against the Houthis in Yemen. I mean, I guess really Al-Qaeda so far has benefited more than ISIS has, but ISIS never even had a foothold in Yemen at all before this war broke out. And the the British and the Americans are uh, clearly flying as their air force. Well, helping to arm their air force. It's amazing the narratives that they can just get away with just claiming. No follow-up, no contradiction in the major media at all. Yeah, kind of like how they got us into this whole mess 25 years ago. Right back with Barry Lando after this. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com.
Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. First up today is Barry Landau. Psh, huh? Lando, like Calrissian. Barry Lando. I don't know how I mispronounced Lando. I'm looking right at the word right in front of my face. Jesus. Our first guest today is Barry Lando. He is a former producer with uh, 60 Minutes and is the author of what must be a great book that I hold in my hand here, Web of Deceit, The History of Western Complicity in Iraq from Churchill to Kennedy to George W. Bush, uh, which unfortunately I have not read yet. But uh, have read quite a few articles and seen some uh, documentaries on YouTube and things uh, by Barry on the real history of the first Gulf War. Obviously, this book goes uh, much further than that. Uh, welcome back to the show, Barry. How are you doing? Oh, I hit the wrong button. Man, am I botching this. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Uh, very good to have you back on the show. And uh, I'll tell you what, I have not read this book yet, uh, but this year I'm finally going to write my own book. And so uh, that necessarily means that I will be devouring this thing. And uh, I promise not to plagiarize, but to give you all the credit you deserve when I cite you um, in, in my uh, anti-terror war book that I'm uh, beginning to work on now. Um, but anyway, so yeah, you are uh, the best guy I know. On the first Gulf War, uh, when it comes to reminding people the real history of what happened there, how we got into this mess, uh, I think it's not even an opinion, but a scientific fact, as uh, David Stockman puts it, that George Bush Sr.'s invasion of Iraq in 1991 was the original sin that just ruined everything for the Middle East and for the United States in the 21st century. At the end of the Cold War, and as your book says, America had been mucking around in Iraq for a long, long time. But at the end of the Cold War, we could have just called the empire off, been a normal country in a normal time, said to hell with the king of Kuwait, and who cares about that, and whatever, and we'd have never had our terror war. We could have had our peace dividend and live in a limited constitutional republic instead of this corrupt world empire uh, and police state that we have now. And um, it's unfortunate because 1991 to, to a great part of our population is now ancient history. No one really remembers anything except how proud they were of the yellow ribbons and American flags and the USA chants and our easy victory over so damn insane the villain of... Uh, of Iraq in 1990 So, sorry to say all that, but just uh, to, you know, remind people why this is important that we talk about this. Uh, could you please, um, Barry, explain, first of all, how it was that Saddam Hussein really uh, went from being, if not an outright, you know, Mubarak-type loyal sock puppet, at least being a, a friendly Middle Eastern dictator to being America's enemy number one? Well, he he was nothing like uh, Mubarak. I mean, he was much more brutal, violent, uh, kind of a killer than than Mubarak ever was. But he was America's uh, sort of ally when during the the uh, 
the eight or nine year war that he fought against uh, Iran during the 80s that resulted in the deaths of a million people and the U.S. actually gave him uh, intelligence help uh, during that time. They had uh, a DIA intelligence expert uh, stationed uh, with the Iranians, giving them satellite information on, on the, of the with the Iraqis, giving them satellite information on where the Iranian troops were, etc. And the U.S. was also very interested in in trading uh, with uh, Iraq. Uh, George Bush was interested in doing that uh, even before the war broke out. So they they weren't they had kind of on again off again relations with Saddam. They saw him as a, a possible ally, a possible trading partner. Uh, but then when the war with Iran uh, ended, uh, they 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 didn't they wanted to kind of undermine uh Saddam he had felt he'd been kind of their ally as as I'd said but the US at that point started encouraging uh, Saddam's enemies in the area to stand up to him and they sent uh, a lot of mixed signals to Saddam uh which is really the reason that uh, I think he in, he actually invaded Kuwait the reason he did uh it was it was due to Bad signaling and, and for the, the failure of the United States really to draw a red line and say, you, you invade uh, Kuwait, we're going to have to react. The Americans never really did that. And despite the fact that uh, Saddam was making some menacing gestures and statements about Kuwait, which he had a legitimate beef with Kuwait and the United States was telling Kuwait, look, don't negotiate with this guy. We've got your back. Uh, unbeknownst to Saddam, so he couldn't figure out why the Kuwaitis were refusing to negotiate with him over things like oil and repaying debts, etc. And he got madder and madder, and he kept uh, signaling that he was going to—he was even going to move militarily. And the U.S. kept refusing to say, "Look, don't do it." Uh, and then Saddam did, and at that point, uh, even when he did, George H.W. Bush still wasn't sure how he was going to react. It wasn't at all clear. That he was that he would move troops uh, to defend uh, Kuwait and attacked uh, Saddam. That was something that he decided upon after the fact. So the whole thing was a very very poor exercise in in U.S. foreign policy and partially responsible for the the whole tragedy itself. Hmm. Yeah, and I think we've discussed this before where if, if you wanted to really oversimplify it, you could make it seem like a real trap that they were telling the Kuwaitis, don't negotiate, continue to, you know, give him the stiff arm and all of this. While at the same time, he's saying to them, man, I really, he's saying to the Americans, I really want to do something about this. And the Americans, not just April Glaspie, but also, um, I forget what's his name, the State Department weenie in testimony before Congress. I'm sorry. Yeah, a number of top American officials, top right. State Department officials, including uh, George Bush himself, mm-hmm. uh, were very waffling about you know, about signaling Saddam. As but, a matter of but fact, you seem very certain, though, Barry, that this is really just a matter of typical bureaucratic blundering. They weren't exactly sure what their policy was or what kind of message they were trying to send, and it wasn't so much a perfect trap for Saddam as much as just a bunch of stupidity, and then they took advantage of it. Yeah, stupidity, and they were paying attention to, of course, the end of the Cold War. That was really the big thing that was happening in the world as far as they were concerned. Uh, you know, the, the Berlin Wall was, uh, was coming down, uh, Russia was coming, you know, the Soviet Union was coming apart. That was the big story as far as they were concerned, and this 
stuff that was happening between, uh, you know, Iraq and Kuwait was kind of a backwater squabble that they weren't paying much attention to mm -hmm. until it was too late. All right. Now, I'm sorry, this is just kind of a side point, but it just occurred to me that if anybody knows the answer, the answer to this, it very well could be you. Um, I can't find this footnote anywhere, but I know that I read it um, from a credible source. And that was that Lloyd Benson. Uh, the former Texas Democratic senator had warned George H.W. Bush, don't put the soldiers, don't put uh, ground forces in Saudi Arabia because it will drive the crazies crazy. And I know I, I couldn't have made that up. I, Lloyd Benson is uh, totally out of left field. But um, I, yeah, I know uh, I read that somewhere. Are you familiar with that by any chance? I'm not familiar with that specific quote, but there were lots of people who warned at the time when they were thinking of sending troops, don't do it. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, hearing that they might possibly send troops, uh, uh, bin, uh, bin Laden went to uh, the, the king of, of Saudi Arabia and said, look, don't accept American troops into our country. Don't, don't accept the infidels in here, because if they if they come, uh, you know, we'll be obliged to, to react. It would be a, a terrible thing for you to do. Despite that, uh, the Saudis uh, decided to let in the American troops, and that really that sent uh, Bin Laden, that really lit his candle, if you want. And uh, that's when he he turned against the United States, and it was after that that he began attacking, you know, American facilities in the Gulf and Africa, and uh, that really led directly to 9/11. All right, now we got to take this break. We'll be right back with Barry Lando, author of Web of Deceit. Right after this. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. Eye on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. I'm talking with Barry Lando about the first Gulf War, Operation Desert Storm, to uh, kick Saddam and the Iraqi army out of Kuwait after their invasion of August 1990. And then, as Lando was saying, is that occupation of the Arabian Peninsula, which I have the soundbite here, but I won't waste our time with it, but it's Cheney admitting that he promised the king of Saudi Arabia, we'll leave as soon as we're done, which they didn't do. And uh, how Osama wanted to kick Saddam out of Kuwait, but the king gave the job to George Bush instead, and how this is a huge part of what led to the terror war. Of course, al-Qaeda cited uh, combat forces on the Arabian Peninsula all throughout the 1990s and their war in the run-up uh, to 9-11, of course. Um, but um, so to go back to, uh, I guess, the run-up to the war, there was Do Operation Desert Shield began in August of 1990 and lasted through the beginning of the war in uh, in January, uh, January 16th of 1991. Um, but uh, 
I wonder, uh, Barry, if you could remind us about the status of negotiations through that time, because Saddam must have taken George Bush Sr. seriously that he would unleash America's Cold War military against, you know, built up to fight the Soviet Union against Little Iraq if they didn't do what the hell they were told to do, which was get out. And yet, for some reason, Saddam refused and said, mother of all battles. And yet I suspect there was more to it than that. Well, there was. I mean, as soon as he realized, was just took a, a couple of, you know, a few days when he realized that uh, that Bush was really adamant and that they were they really were going to. Uh, it looked like they were going to send troops, uh, or that they were at least there were going to be major reprisals. Uh, Saddam immediately said, "Well, uh, hold it. Uh, you know, we're not going any further. Uh, let's talk. Let's negotiate." Uh, Meanwhile, the, the the story had been put out by Cheney originally that the the uh, Saddam was intent on invading Saudi Arabia, going right through Kuwait and going into Saudi Arabia. That's how he convinced the Saudis to accept the American troops. Really, the threat of an invasion by Saddam into their country, and there's there's now and the, afterwards there's no real evidence that that Saddam had that in mind at all, but it was used uh, as kind of a uh, you know, a, a false uh, flag by by the Bush administration to uh, to move those troops uh, into Saudi Arabia and, uh, as you know, to, to keep them there. And yeah, there were lots of attempts to negotiate, particularly by the by Saddam during the fall. As time went on, he you know he offered all kinds of uh, of possibilities of pulling Iraqi troops out and. Uh, as t- it was clear, though, that once Bush had decided to act, he wasn't going to let Saddam out of the trap. Yeah. Uh, well, and that was no- even obvious to me as a ninth grader at the time was yeah, once you well, start building up your military right, uh, to do a war, it's pretty much on <laughs> in a situation like that. But now, can you be more specific about, you know, what exact uh, kind of peace feelers that he put out through the Swiss, through whoever to wh- what it was he was willing to do was and and on the American side. Was the argument simply, we already told you, get your army out of Kuwait, period, or we'll kill you, and that's the only negotiation? Or, or how was it that they, you know, for months refused to negotiate when they could have? Yeah, that was basically the U.S. position was uh, get your troops out, but it wasn't get your troops out, you know, withdraw them. Uh, uh, it was we want them out within when Saddam said, OK, we'll get them out. It was like. No, you got to get them out within, you know, three or four days or within one week. I forget what the exact, the exact time limit was, but there was no way that he could move fast enough to satisfy, uh, the U.S. deadline. Also, uh, Saddam, uh, his, his own political neck, uh, was, uh, was in the noose, if you will, because the Iraqi army now, uh, would, uh, if he, if he pulled out like that, the, the Iraqi army would, would be after him and he, and he might be overthrown. So he was trying to negotiate a way out that would allow him to leave, avoid the bloodshed, but also allow him to remain in power. And Bush wasn't going to give him that way out. The, a lot of the, the neighbors, uh, the Jordanians particularly were attempting to negotiate to say, hold it, wait a minute, let's, we can deal with this guy. And the U.S. wasn't going to do it. And the Egyptians also. Uh, the U.S. pressured them uh, to back off and undermine any attempts at negotiation. Okay, now, okay. well, I mean, well, I hate I mean, to just skip the, the work. I guess I want to get to the Great Bay of Pigs of the Desert and all the consequences of the 
the the urging of the uprising against Saddam and the betrayal of it after the war. But I don't want to skip the war entirely here. How many Iraqis were killed in the thing? Do you know? I don't think anyone, uh, you know, anyone knows what the final total was. It they he did not succeed in destroying uh, the bulk though of uh, Saddam's forces. I mean, his the presidential guard, his strongest forces managed. Uh, a lot of them managed to get out uh, and, and were not destroyed. But, you know, uh, tens of thousands of, of people were, of soldiers were, other soldiers were killed. And uh, their attempts to evacuate, they were uh, this long string of trucks and tanks trying to make it out through the, the dunes back to uh, Iraq were bombed and strafed uh, endlessly by, uh, you know, American planes, and there was, it was kind of like an inferno all along the way. So, but a lot did make it back out, and they were the ones who uh, were able to put down the the uprising that uh, that George Bush had called for in Iraq. Mm. And now, I don't want to bog down the interview with it too much, but in the top of the hour break, I'm going to go ahead and play my collection of Gulf War One sound bites that will, you know, inform a lot of this and, and describe what you're saying. But we do have that clip. In fact, this one is short enough, I guess, a Bush senior here. There's another way for the bloodshed to stop, and that is for the Iraqi military and the Iraqi people to take matters into their own hands, to force Saddam Hussein, the dictator, to step aside. And then this was played on Voice of America and um, put on le- quotes, put on leaflets and whatever. And this was a, a real, you know, effort by the Americans to encourage, especially the Shia and I guess the Kurds in the north as well, to rise up against Saddam. And then what happened? Someone went to a college and got a briefing somewhere and came back and said, hey, if we do that, we're going to turn the south of the country over to Iran. And so we better not. And they changed their mind or what? Exactly. Well, they did change their mind once the, when the uprising took place. And spread, and it looked like Saddam's army, uh, thinking they were, you know, the uprising was going to be successful, that Saddam's army was going to go over, or a lot of them were going to go over to the rebels. Uh, at that point, yeah, some people within the Bush administration got scared, probably George H.W. himself, James Baker, and they said, gee, we, 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 we can't uh, allow this uh, to be successful because if it is, that will allow Iran uh, through the through the Iraqi Shiites. Iran then will be able to greatly increase its power in Iraq, which is exactly what we don't want, and it will upset our Saudi allies. It's exactly the same kind of story you're getting today. Sure. It will upset our Saudi allies, so we, we we're not going to help them. And so I actually spoke with U.S. soldiers who who just were just a few miles away. They could watch the the uh, the uprising being put down in a very bloody way by Saddam's military helicopters, which the U.S. had allowed to keep on flying. They were watching and they could do nothing about it. They were had orders just to stay stay pat. At best, they they treated some of the, the wounded, some of the civilians who were fleeing, but they couldn't help uh, the rebels. And the rebellion finally was put down, but with huge losses. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people were killed. Mm-hmm. And then this became the basis for the entire U.N. blockade regime and the no-fly zones and the permanent criminalization and delegitimization of the Iraqi regime 
for the under the U.S. and for the U.N. too to be whipping boys of these you know institutions. Uh, basically, uh, it was decided that well, as as uh, Secretary of State uh, Madeleine Albright announced in the Clinton years, the blockade, the sanctions will never be lifted as long as Saddam Hussein remains in power, and they just basically turn the whole country into a prison. Well, they did. As a matter of fact, in one of her interviews with uh, it was with, with 60 Minutes, when she was asked, uh, because it was then estimated that the embargo, that sanctions that were put on uh, Iraq after 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 nine after that battle, after the the U.S. attack, uh, caused the death of at least 500,000 Iraqi children. And she was asked, uh, 500,000 Iraqi children. Was that worth it, Mrs. Albright? And she said, yes, it's worth it. Right. And so, and so uh, uh, there you have it. On the 25th anniversary of Gulf War One. In fact, here's one more quote I have uh, to, to let you go with here, Barry, for you. This will not be another Vietnam. Yeah, no, it'll take a lot longer than that. Uh, Barry, I really appreciate your time on the show and your great work. That's Barry Lando, everyone. The book is Web of Deceit. We'll be right back. All right, and then here uh, for the recording later, I'll go ahead and lay down some of my best tracks for you from the first Gulf War. First, here is uh, Dick Cheney describing to Bill Crystal Saddam Hussein's legitimate gripes back in 1990. Saddam had been throwing his weight around. Right. The Iran-Iraq war had ended. Economically, he was in some difficulty. Um, he had accused the Kuwaitis, for example, of undercutting the oil price. And uh, that hurt him because he was almost totally dependent on oil revenues for his government. And uh, he'd actually moved troops to the down to the Kuwaiti border. Right. And uh, the advice we got from our friends in the area was don't do anything to upset him. This is just a show of force. He's trying to negotiate a better deal on oil prices and so forth. And uh, he'll never invade. And that's what we got from the region. Uh, at one point, the United Arab Emirates, in the run-up to the actual invasion, they were concerned. And uh, they called and wanted... Uh... All right, and then uh, here's Cheney explaining to Crystal also about uh, basically how he, not uh, Baker, uh, he, the Secretary of Defense, led the negotiation with the Saudis to begin to occupy the Arabian Peninsula and the build-up to the war. And then the king turned back to me after a couple of minutes and he said, okay, we'll do it. But he had um, two conditions. One, that you'll bring enough force to do it right and to get it done. And secondly, that you'll leave when it's over with. And I committed, uh, gave him my word on that basis. I, mean, I knew that's what the president wanted to do anyway. The president had already, in effect, authorized you to, had said we were willing yeah, to I, was, I was there to close the deal, in yeah, effect. yeah. Yeah, there you go. And then uh, here's a little bit of uh, favored war propaganda for you from 1990. While I was there, I saw the Iraqi soldiers come into the hospital with guns. They took the babies out of the incubators, took the incubators and left the children to die on the cold floor. Which was a pure lie. She was not a Kuwaiti nurse at all. She was the daughter of the ambassador, and she was given a script by the Hill and Knowlton PR firm on payroll uh, to come up with this completely fabricated war propaganda, which the president at the time happily repeated. They had kids in incubators, and they were thrown out of the incubators so that 
Kuwait could be systematically dismantled. Oh, he cares so much about the little Belgian babies on the bayonets there. Um, and then uh, I hope I'm not going too bad out of order here. Yes, here's some. Um, well, I played the Bush senior uh, urging the Shia and Kurds to rise up. There's another way for the bloodshed to stop, and that is for the Iraqi military and the Iraqi people to take matters into their own hands, to force Saddam Hussein, the dictator, to step aside. And then here's Dick Cheney interviewed in 1994 at the American Enterprise Institute uh, defending himself from the neocon accusation that we should have gone all the way to Baghdad. And why didn't he go all the way to Baghdad? It's just like when CBS is confronting Hillary Clinton. Why aren't you doing enough against Assad? And then so she admits the truth. Well, we don't want to accidentally back al-Qaeda, do we? Kind of thing. Well, here's Cheney under the gun. Uh, why didn't you do enough against Saddam? And so he's explaining why that would have been a bad idea from 1994. Do you think that the U.S. or U.N. forces should have moved into Baghdad? No. Why not? Because if we'd gone to Baghdad, we would have been all alone. There wouldn't have been anybody else with us. It would have been a U.S. occupation of Iraq. None of the Arab forces that were willing to fight with us in Kuwait were willing to invade Iraq. Uh, once you got to Iraq and took it over and took down Saddam Hussein's government, then what are you going to put in its place? That's a very volatile part of the world, and, and if you take down the central government in Iraq, you can easily end up seeing pieces of Iraq fly off. Uh, part of it uh, the Syrians would like to have to the west, uh, part of eastern Iraq uh, the Iranians would like to claim, fought over for eight years. In the north, you've got the Kurds, and if the Kurds spin loose and join with the Kurds in Turkey, then you threaten the territorial integrity of Turkey. It's a, it's a quagmire if you go that far and try to take over <laughs> Iraq. The other thing was casualties. Uh, everyone was impressed with the fact that uh, we were able to do our job with as few casualties as we had. But for the 146 Americans killed in action and for their families, it wasn't a cheap war. And the question for the president in terms of whether or not we went on to Baghdad and took additional casualties in an effort to get Saddam Hussein was how many additional dead Americans is Saddam worth? And our judgment was uh, not very many, and I think we got it right. There you go. And... Um so this is the exact same reason why they betrayed the Shia and Kurd uprising. Um, as we talked about, as they realized that would be the consequences, uh, just as he put it. And uh, and then that led to the Clinton regime of just permanent, endless, can't even call it low-level war, full-scale blockade on a global level. Um, again, you know, read uh, Andrew Coburn and or Anthony Gregory's reviews of Joy Gordon's book, uh, Joy Gordon. Um, anyway, just type in Andrew Coburn, Joy Gordon, or Anthony Gregory, Joy Gordon, and Invisible War. Invisible War. I was thinking Silent War, but that ain't it. Invisible War by Joy Gordon uh, about the 90s regime of blockade and, frankly, genocide against the people of Iraq. And uh, here is that famous quote of Madeleine Albright that our guest referred to there. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when, in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. And so there you go. That's chapter one and, and chapter 1.5 of America's 25-year war against Iraq right there. Hey, y'all, guess what? 
You can now order transcripts of any interview I've done for the incredibly reasonable price of two and a half bucks each. Listen, finding a good transcriptionist is near impossible, but I've got one now. Just go to scotthorton.org slash transcripts, enter the name and date of the interview you want written up, click the PayPal button, and I'll have it in your email in 72 hours max. You don't need a PayPal account to do this. Man, I'm really going to have to learn how to talk more good. That's scotthorton.org slash transcripts. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism vs. Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism vs. Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, y'all, welcome back. <clears throat> Man, I'm sorry. That was such a clumsy interview on my part. He was fine. I'm terrible. I'm just trying to brainwash you guys into knowing what the truth is on what I think are the most important points. So, but too much direction on my part. Not enough listening, but it just seemed like time was going so fast, didn't it? And by the way... Uh, all you live listeners, later on, go back and check the whole show archive because uh, for quite a few minutes during the break there, I went ahead and narrated and played a bunch of the different sound bites that I had of uh, from 1990 and 91 and references to, back to it that I could have played during his interview, but it would have made it even more disjointed. But it's nice to have a lot of that audio if you want to go back and hear it. So, all right. Um now, uh, man, there's Yemen, Syria, Libya, Afghanistan. There's so much news. Um, and I want to talk about Trump and Sanders and all this stuff too, man. But, uh, Gareth's coming up and I only got so much time. Oh, and the DPRK thing. But someone asked me specifically, hey, man, can you talk about Benghazi? Okay, I can talk about Benghazi. And you know what? It is important. Uh, on all different kind of levels. It is important. Um, I can't talk about the movie. Because I haven't seen the movie. Uh, as soon as it's on the Pirate Bay, then I guess I'll let you know what I think of the movie. Um, but, you know, for now, and I read I, I read a headline at least that said it was a flop at the box office. Um, and that probably is representative of kind of the generated fake scandal. And the thing is, the fake scandal is actually a real scandal. It's just fake because of the context. In the end, what difference does it make? It makes all the difference, the context, you know? So, um, here's what I have to say that I think you need to know or understand about Benghazi in the first place. First of all, it's a city in eastern Libya. Picture Libya there, center of North Africa. You got Tripoli in the west. You got Benghazi in the east and a lot of other towns too, but at least now, at least we're somewhat on the same page of the atlas here, okay, as we speak. Okay, um... And now, here's uh, the most important thing about Benghazi that you need to know, and this is in chronological order, too, and that is that Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama lied. They lied like the Bushes, straight to your face, about the casus belli, that is the fancy term for the reason that's supposedly good enough for the war. Okay? The casus belli was... 
Gaddafi and his forces have sworn, and we believe them, that they are going to kill every single last man, woman, and child in Benghazi till they're all dead. And this would be just like that time that we didn't prevent a genocide in Rwanda. And wasn't that sad? And so now's our chance to prevent a genocide in Benghazi. Okay, and so we're going to not make that same Rwanda mistake. We're going to have our responsibility to protect. And we're going to protect the people of Benghazi from Gaddafi. Except the thing is, they were lying their asses off. And they knew that they were lying. And the proof of that is in the Washington Times and uh, it's by Jeffrey Scott Shapiro and Kelly Riddell and it's all about and we're very well sourced all about how the CIA and the DIA knew that uh, this was totally fake and that they advised the civilian government of that fact but they used it as their Gulf of Tonkin weapons of mass destruction uh, battleship Maine Lusitania Pearl Harbor fake ass excuse uh, for a war uh, anthrax to a ta. They used it as their fake excuse. Oh, uh, genocide in Kosovo. Don't, I always skip Kosovo. I shouldn't. Um, they're, they're babies in incubators, so to speak, for the Libya war. That's point one. Point two is, what was Ambassador Stevens doing in Benghazi? Well, the State Department and the CIA were running, you know, in various degrees, they were running and overseeing a mission, I guess, supposedly at least uh, spearheaded by Qatar, to run guns and jihadists from Libya off to the next jihad in Syria. America took the side of the bin Ladenites. And the reason that Ambassador Stevens was not in Tripoli but was in Benghazi was because that was where the jihadists were based out of. That was whose side America had taken in the war. And they were going on to the next one. America taking the side of the black flag, waving throat-slitting lunatics up in Syria, too. And so off they were going. So what happened to Ambassador Stevens, I think, was a matter of he didn't have good enough security. He was stationed in the middle of a hornet's nest with not good enough security. He should have had a battalion army troops. He was, he was in the middle of Al-Qaeda town. Uh, America had fought the war for the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group and Ansar al-Sharia, who were veterans of al-Qaeda in Iraq from Iraq War II. Really? That's who they were? They admitted it. It's in the Telegraph. Bel Hodge and al-Hasidi and these guys were some of them leaders in bin Laden's organization. And that was whose side they took. So, yes, it's true they didn't have good enough security, but you see how when somebody goes, they didn't have good enough security, and that's all they talk about, it's, as Robert Gates would call it, war through a soda straw. They're not asking the question why better security would be needed in a place like Benghazi, huh? Because America took the side of our enemies. And even though the State Department, and, the you know, apparently more than anybody else, uh, loves al-Qaeda... Al-Qaeda does not love the State Department. So, it's like that thing about the, uh, with the scorpion and the frog and the, whatever, the crocodile or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, well, this is up to you, love. Okay, and then, uh, let's see, next here. Uh, oh, and the poor reaction time. This is the thing I don't know as much about. But it said that the CIA guys wanted to run straight to the complex to help the ambassador. And somebody in charge there said, well, wait, let's see if we can get more help to join us there. So give me a few minutes. And then 
that didn't work and they went anyway or something or they didn't whatever. Who cares? That I mean, not who cares, but um, that to me sounds like the least scandalous part of it. And if you listen to the kooks, they go, oh, yeah, this is where Obama, just because he loves Islam and hates America so much, you know, gleefully ordered no one to help anyone so that these guys would just be sacrificed. And what sense does that make? That doesn't make any sense. And there may be there may be a very substantial accusation that the CIA and the DOD were sitting around with their thumbs up their asses, making the wrong decisions when they should have been making, you know, hastier and better ones. But uh, that would seem to me, you know, least scandalous in the sense of the corruption or whatever behind it, but the most scandalous in the sense of the most immediate consequences for the dead. If somebody said, wait 10 minutes, and that was the all-important 10 minutes for your cousin or brother or husband over there, then that's the biggest scandal of, of all. So, uh, again, I'm not saying that it's a fake scandal in and of itself. I'm saying it's a fake scandal out of context of the fact that Obama and Hillary fought a war of high treason for America's enemies and, and and badgered into it by their major opposition in the Republican Party, by the way, like John McCain, et cetera, at the time, uh, Marco Rubio. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the poor reaction time, you know, may be a big deal, uh, but uh, I'm just saying in the real context, it's a small part of the story. And then... Uh, Okay, now this, well, the larger story, back to the larger story, which is that Belhaj, Al-Kim Belhaj, is now the leader of ISIS in Libya. The guy who gave McCain a medal. The guy who the CIA had kidnapped and tortured, who's suing the MI6 for helping the CIA do it right now, by the way. He was kidnapped and tortured under the rendition program, was in fact an admitted associate of bin laden's and al-qaeda and a fighter against americans at least in iraq i forget i think it was the other guy hasidi who said he fought america in iraq and afghanistan but that could have been belhaj too but anyway he certainly admitted he fought americans in in one or the other both of those uh theaters and um and then and he'd been renditioned to Gaddafi. he's suing in court in britain there's no rule of law in america but he's suing in britain over this he he was illegally tortured and kidnapped even an al-Qaeda guy. But he was an al-Qaeda guy. And now he's loyal to the Islamic State, which is fighting a war in Libya. This is the scandal. War. Regime change. And when they knew that the opposition were a bunch of bin Ladenites, they knew it. It's in the Washington Times. I love Bitcoin, but there's just something incredibly satisfying about having real, fine silver in your pocket. That's why commodity disks are so neat. They're one-ounce rounds of fine silver with a QR code on the back. Just grab your smartphone's QR reader, scan the coin, and you'll instantly get the silver spot price in Federal Reserve notes and Bitcoin. And if you donate 100 bucks to The Scott Horton Show, he'll send you one. Learn more at Facebook.com slash Commodity Discs. CommodityDiscs.com. Hey, Al Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. And they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. All right, y'all, welcome back. 
I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Oh, yeah, Gareth Porter's coming up here in just a little while, man. I'm going to ask him what he thinks about things, and he's going to answer. It's going to be great. Listen, I need to give some footnotes about my uh, Benghazi talking that I've done here. Um, I think uh, the most important thing for you to read would be The Rat Line by Seymour Hirsch in the New York Review of Books. It's actually The Red Line and The Rat Line. The Red Line and The Rat Line, and it's mostly about the false flag uh, Turkish al-Nusra sarin attack that they tried to pin on Assad back in 2013. But um, uh, he also talks quite a bit about what was going on in Benghazi and the gun-running operation that was going on there. Uh, you can also, you know, here's some keywords for your list. Uh, Judicial Watch, type that in uh, maybe with Judge Napolitano because he wrote great articles about uh, the Judicial Watch documents um, that show and, and emails, uh, Hillary emails that show, uh, of her awareness of the Qatari operation going on and to some degree describes, uh, the operation in Benghazi. Uh, there were articles, if you want to go back to the time, 2011 and 12, certainly 12, uh, there were reports in Fox News, although they were credible and, and decently reported articles. Um, Fox News and, uh, I think, uh, better than that, the Sunday Times in the UK about ships traveling from, uh, Libya to Syria. Uh, the one in, in, uh, you might even remember, uh, Rand Paul brought this up to Hillary Clinton in a Senate hearing at one point. And I wish he'd had his footnotes together or, you know, maybe he'd had the article right there and could have read some of it to her and, and, called out her perjury a, a little more blatantly, but I'm, I'm fairly certain he was referring to this um, Sunday Times article where they talk about that you know, the reporter was there, and here's this giant ship full of jihadis and guns, and then an argument broke out of whether Al-Qaeda or the Muslim Brotherhood gets it or where, and they were all in Turkey. They're in a Turkish port, and it's all guns to, you know, through our ally, the, the Turks, uh, to go to the jihadis to fight in Syria. Uh, so plenty there. And then, uh, man, you know, I'm really spacing out and missing, uh, uh, let's see, the judge. Oh, um, of course, Brad Hoff uh, has great coverage of this at LevantReport.com. Robert Perry has great coverage of this at, um, I don't know if he has great coverage of this. I know Robert Perry has at least touched on this at consortiumnews.com. He really has some great writers uh, going on there. They're all a bunch of dang progressives, but still, man, they're good. Um, and then uh, let me see here. Well, let me look back at my list. Oh, the fake cost of spelly stuff. Uh, here's the deal. The, the Washington Times series on Libya is so great. So what you do is you type in my name, Scott Horton. And then Washington Times, Libya. And the reason that you do that is because I wrote a blog entry where I go, here you go. I went and rustled up all the titles and links for you. The Washington Times website is a mess. Uh, but I got all the printer versions there so they don't, you know, blow you up with a thousand pop-ups and a bunch of crash browsers and madness. They have, it's funny, that website is a disaster, but their printer versions are beautiful. So, I'm sorry, I'm a web user, okay? <laughs> I, I quibble when it comes to this stuff. Um, but I got the whole series uh, posted for you there. Uh, Jeffrey Scott Shapiro and Kelly Riddell, they did a really great job a year ago, uh, 11 months ago. Uh, February 2015, they did this five 
maybe six part series or something at some point in there. Uh, that you really got to look at. It's great. And it's all about how, uh, they knew they were lying, how they knew it was jihadis, how the U.S. was, and their allies and their special forces were behind the uprising, you know, and encouraging it and arming it from the very, very beginning. Um, and about how the military and the CIA and Dennis Kucinich tried to stop her. I swear to God, you gotta read this, man. Her, Hillary Clinton. The military, the head of AFRICOM, who you would think wants nothing but to expand his responsibilities, right? He's a government job holder. A war? Right on. Let's have one. No. The head of AFRICOM, and I don't know who all at the CIA, but at least some at the CIA, and Dennis Kucinich are trying to stop the war. The Joint Chiefs. We're trying to stop the war. You can read not just Josh Rogan, but he did write this, but uh, Matthew, uh, Michael Hastings. Oh, God, forgive me, my friend. Uh, Michael Hastings and, and many others reported about this, where Obama had a meeting where it was Gates and I guess Mullen was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time. He had um, uh, the National Security Advisor and whoever else on one side, and then he had the ladies on the other Samantha Power, Susan Rice, and Hillary Clinton. And they said, let's do it. We got to do the war. And Obama went with them. And all he had to do, all he had to do was tell the cameras, Robert Gates, my Republican Secretary of Defense, and my Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff say, hell no. And so I'm hiding behind them. My right flank is completely covered. And we're negotiating now for Gaddafi's son to kick him out and improve some human rights. After all... George Bush, and this is another very important point to make about that war, guys. George Bush brought Gaddafi in from the cold. It was a publicity stunt. He needed to pretend that the Iraq war scared Gaddafi into capitulating, when in fact Gaddafi had been kissing Bill Clinton's shoes since back in 1996, begging to normalize relations with America. But anyway, sorry, I can't mention these things without debunking the lies surrounding them, too, as best I can. Gaddafi had bought a bunch of crap from AQ Khan's garage sale, the Pakistani uh, nuclear proliferator, and it was all just a bunch of junk sitting in a warehouse. But he agreed he would give all that up to George Bush if Bush would normalize relations. And so Bush had this doctrine where, you know, be a good boy and uh, give up your WMD programs and we can be friends again, unlike Saddam, who refused to give it up. And so we had to regime change you, that kind of thing. Now, if you are the head of what America considers a rogue state out there, what's the lesson here? Saddam had none, swore it, got bombed anyway. North Korea had none, said, forget you guys, we're making some, and America's left them alone all this time. Gaddafi negotiates, says, here, you can have everything we've got, and then America stabs him in the back and kills him. In fact, it's a miracle that at that point the Iranians didn't change their tactic and say, you know what, maybe we do need to have a nuclear weapons deterrent at this point because how can we negotiate with the Americans when, never mind, you know, the Bush-Cheney regime, this is the duplicity. There's a stronger, worse word for it that I'm searching for, but my vocabulary is failing me. Um, this is the son of a bitchery of Barack Obama, the nice guy. You like that? This backstabbing bastard. 
And um, and man, it, you read that series about how Kucinich was was talking with Safe Gaddafi, who I'm sure was a son of a bitch too. You know, come on, he's horrible, but still, he's less worse than his old man, and swore to God he was gonna obey. Not good enough. Hey, she had her reasons, man. All right, I'm sorry, Afghanistan and uh, Syria wars. I didn't get to talk about you today tomorrow hey i'll scott horton here for mpv engineering this isn't for all of you but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end users who own and operate industrial equipment mpv offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects tanks pressure vessels piping heat exchangers hvac equipment chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. Don't you get sick of the Israel lobby trying to get us into more wars in the Middle East? Or always abusing Palestinians with your tax dollars? It once seemed like the lobby would always have full-spectrum dominance on the foreign policy discussion in D.C. But those days are over. The Council for the National Interest is the America lobby, standing up and pushing back against the Israel lobby's undue influence on Capitol Hill. Go show some support at CouncilForTheNationalInterest.org. That's CouncilForTheNationalInterest.org. All right, y'all, welcome back. Gareth Porter wrote the book Manufactured Crisis, the truth behind the Iran nuclear scare, where he just debunked every last accusation against it. Not because he's a pro-Iran partisan, just because all the accusations were lies. That's pretty pretty easy. Uh, It's a really great book. I do hope you'll read it. Um, it'll go down in history, definitive, uh, on this issue, as definitive on this issue. I'm starting to talk like a Fox News anchor. I watch too much. Uh, will Iran, nuclear deal, I'm, I'm starting to talk like a Middle East Eye headline writer. Will Iran, nuclear deal, change U.S.'s Middle East politics? Welcome back to the show, Gareth. How are you? Thanks very much, uh, Scott. I'm glad to be back and, and I'm fine. Okay, good. Forgot to put my earphones on. Now they're on. Um, all right, now, so, okay, uh, let me ask you this, uh, article writer. Um, what changed in American politics that made them decide to pass this nuclear deal in the first place? Because it, it seems like the obvious answer to your question is, no, it's not going to change. America's allies are the axis of Saudi and Israel <laughs> in the region, not Iran. And, you know, it would be a huge change to turn that around. What are they going to do? Turn right around and start treating the Ayatollah like he's our pet, the Shah, or something like that? That's never going to happen. And so why in the world did they even do this deal with Iran? Because it wasn't just Obama did the deal. It was some major portion of the American national security state and, and establishment, foreign policy establishment, but also just establishment, decided that now is the time, at least for this nuclear deal, if not some other major change. So why? What gives? Well, it's a very, it's, it's a very appropriate question and one that I, I certainly uh, agree has not been answered in the, uh, in the news media or, or the literature thus far. Uh, and I think the answer is pretty clear that uh, this was not the agreement that was originally envisioned by the Obama administration when it came in. 
uh, you know, yes, they were going to use diplomacy eventually, but only after they had softened up the Iranians with uh, basically a combination of various kinds of threats and pressures so that that Iran would then be willing to uh, make the concessions that were politically desired by the Obama administration. And of course, mainly and, and overwhelmingly important was the concession to give up the whole uh, idea of enriching uranium. I mean, that was that was the whole point of of Iran's of, of uh, Obama's Iran diplomacy. It was to get the Iranians to give on the question of of its enrichment program. So so it was never supposed to be a kind of of equal uh, agreement whereby Iran limited its nuclear program, but clearly uh, was not going to give it up, uh, whereas the United States would lift sanctions. It was supposed to be a, uh, a clear demonstration of the, uh, of the uh, power of the United States in world affairs and particularly uh, power over Iran. Yeah, but um, it turned into this whole other thing where America is at least half-assed bringing them in from the cold, right? On a it, Gaddafi 2003-type level, it, at least, it, it no? Turn, it did turn into that, and I'm, and I'm getting to the point. I am getting to the point. Sorry. <laughs> by the way, which is important because I think people need to understand that, that this was not simply something that Obama decided out of the goodness of his heart uh, or because he suddenly became an Iran lover uh, or became, you know, soft on Iran or whatever. Contrary to that idea, uh, what actually happened was that that the whole, uh, you know, pressure on Iran uh, strategy, this this coercive diplomacy strategy, as I've called it, uh, uh, failed, uh, failed dis- abysmally. Uh, it was a it was an utter failure. Uh, what happened instead of Iran giving way to these pressures was that Iran built up its nuclear uh, program, built up it, the number of centrifuges uh, enormously from the time Obama took office uh, and uh, began to even uh, go beyond the 3.5 uh, percent enriched uh, enrichment of uranium the sort of minimal level of, of enrichment of uranium that it had uh, stuck to up to 2010 and began to enrich uranium, uh, as you know well, at the level of about 20%. Uh, and, and then this, of course, all this fed into a very severe political diplomatic problem for the Obama administration because then it was under pressure, uh, intense pressure from the Israelis particularly, to do something about it. Well, what are you going to do about this? You know, and of course, we, we both know, and every, I think all of your listeners know that what the Israelis really wanted was a military confrontation between the United States and Iran. And it looked like they were going to get that, uh, because of the, uh, uh, the, the pressure that they were able to put on, on the Obama administration. I think that Netanyahu actually had high hopes of being able to accomplish that at some point, uh, after 2011. But, uh, but of course, what actually happened was that Obama was not ready to go to war with Iran, and so instead he had to come to terms because he had a very severe political problem on his hands. And so I, I think that's really the, the simple answer, uh, uh to a, a very big and, and a difficult question, uh, an important question. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and after all, it, it, it should very much uh, be stated here and never take it for granted uh, to go without saying in an argument like this that they have conceded a lot. And as you said all along, hey, they're building up their 20% so that they can negotiate it away. They're building yeah, up absolutely. comms so that they can negotiate it away in exchange for normalization to a degree. And that's really the thing I'm trying to get to here, too, is right. that this isn't just a nuclear deal. It's at least a half-assed peace deal with Iran here, No. Well, it is a peace deal with Iran in, in effect. Uh, you know, I, I am not saying that that was the intent by Obama, uh, to begin with, that what he really wanted above all else was peace with Iran. I mean, in the sense of peace going beyond not having to fight a war with Iran. He didn't want to fight a war with Iran, but he was not trying to reach a detente with Iran, which is, is in the same vein as detente with uh, the Chinese, for example, um, uh, during the Nixon administration. So, so I, I think his his view was uh, not to go to war, but to exercise the power the United States had through its threat of uh, military action, through the threat of Israeli military action. Even more than that, uh, the cyber threat, the the attack on uh, Natanz, and then ultimately in 2012. Let's not forget that in 2012. Uh, there was another round of attacks, not on, on Natanz, but on the oil and gas industry. This, this is not as w- nearly as well known, not very well known at all. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, uh, the pressure from the threat and ultimately the actual implementation of what they expected to be crippling sanctions, sanctions that would force the Iranians to the table. So, I mean, this is, it's terribly important for people to understand just how much of a diplomatic defeat this was for, for Obama. And also, as you uh, just put it, that, that what the Iranians were doing in uh, rapidly building up their, the number of centrifuges that they were producing, building, and putting, um, you know, putting in place in their facilities uh, was not to try to rush for a nuclear weapon, but mm-hmm. but simply to put diplomatic pressure on the United States, and it was very effective. Yeah, and, and by the way, I mean I've made the point. I've made the point, uh, uh, Scott, that that the, the the Obama administration knew perfectly well that that that's what the Iranians were doing. Mm-hmm. That it was in fact a a ploy to uh, to put diplomatic pressure to to have diplomatic negotiating chips with the United States. Uh, and a form of political pressure on, on the, on the Obama administration. Right. Uh, and, and so, so it was in that sense, uh, a more complicated game that was going on. Right. Okay. Now on the other side of this break, we're going to get to just how much of a victory it was for the Iranians, uh, even as it was a defeat for the American position. Uh, it's the great Gareth Porter writing at MiddleEastEye.net. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. 
you hate government, one of them libertarian types, or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Gareth Porter patiently hanging on the line, as usual. Um, will Iran nuclear deal change U.S.'s Middle East politics? And that's really what I want to get to here now. Uh, Gareth is, I'm sure I probably was overstating it here. Oh, if for people catching up on the news, they've implemented the deal. The Iranians have already abided by all of it, scaling back their everything and expanding all the inspections and everything they had to do, uh, closing the PMD file and everything they had to do to get the sanctions lifted. And now the West has lifted the sanctions like in the deal. And so, uh, here we are, but so I think I was probably, because I was being positive and optimistic about something, I'm sure I was wrong, uh, I was probably overstating just maybe how much of a deal this really is. I mean, as we've talked about for years, Gareth, this, the nuclear issue is, it doesn't matter that it's a fake manufactured crisis. What matters is that it's a nuclear weapons crisis, and it has been this huge, fake, outstanding issue outstanding enough to prevent any kind of of real rapprochement between America and Iran this whole time. But so is the opposite the case then that, well, now without this gigantic fake issue uh, to disrupt everything, that now things can begin to get back to normal? Or is it, no, just a nuclear deal and the status quo is going to basically reign? It's the latter, Scott. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, you know, one would think that logically this kind of enormously high-profile uh, uh, international agreement between the United States and Iran, of course, you know, there are others involved, but essentially it was a, it was a negotiation between those two parties, that that would in fact change the face of, uh, the relationship between the two, between the two countries and indeed even have huge impact on, uh, the politics of the Middle East. But, uh, you know, the evidence to the contrary is simply overwhelming. And, and I would uh, point to something that I didn't even cover in my article because uh, it has happened essentially uh, since I wrote it, since I submitted the article last week. And that is that the within 24 hours of the lifting of the sanctions under the JCPOA's implementation on implementation day, mm. uh, the United States... Uh, the Obama administration imposed new sanctions in the form of uh, what they call designations of uh, 11 Iranian uh, Iranians or, or Iranian entities for their connection with the Iranian ballistic missile program. Now, you know, that is uh, in and of itself, of course, a gesture of hostility toward Iran. Uh, and, that, you know, I, I mention it simply because it underlines the enormous weight, the enormous burden of the past that lies on U.S. policy toward Iran. It has been now, uh, you know, well over three decades since the U.S., uh, you know, basically adopted a hostile policy toward Iran. 
And in the meantime, over those three decades, uh, you know, the the ways in which the hostility toward Iran has been embedded in American domestic politics, law and policy uh, are are simply uh, enormous. I mean, it's uh, you know, there, there are too many ways uh, in, in which that has happened to even begin to try to summarize them. But. Uh, you know, we all know about the way in which um, the Clinton administration began the the whole uh, phenomenon of imposing economic sanctions on Iran beginning in 1994-95. And that has continued and simply continued to grow over the intervening years. Um, and, And of course, the Israeli lobby was behind that and continues to quarterback every change that takes place uh, through its minions in Congress. Um, and and that uh, constitutes an enormous obstacle to any change in U.S. policy. Uh, and and that's, that's just the beginning of, of the uh, numerous ways in which U.S. policy is freighted with all of these relics of the past but then the, the, these relics of the past are constantly being renewed and transformed and strengthened. And, and now, you know, I've talked about this on your show and in, in my articles, you know, the, the uh, U.S. military and the Pentagon have enormous stakes in maintaining a relationship of, ad, you know, a, an adversary relationship with Iran because it is the rationale for so many important uh uh, uh, programs, including arms sales to the Saudis and other Gulf shakedoms, uh, based on the idea that, that Iran is a threat to them, as well as, uh, anti-missile systems that are being sold to the region and the, the big, you know, kahuna, if you will, the, the idea of an anti-missile system in the United States on the U.S. mainland, which is, uh, largely uh, justified these days and has been for a long time by the alleged threat of ballistic missiles to the United States itself. And so, therefore, the other story that I didn't talk about in my article, but which I'm going to write about now, my next article is going to be about how the U.S. has really imposed these sanctions not on the grounds that, that the, the ballistic missile test in last October was for uh, for nuclear weapons or capable of carrying nuclear weapons. They're not even saying that anymore. What they're saying now is that Iran should not have and cannot have, as far as we're concerned, a ballistic missile program. So, you know, how much more fundamental can uh, hostility between one country and another country be mm-hmm. than for the bigger power to say to the smaller country, you cannot have uh, the, the most fundamental defensive measures that are possible for you um, and and the one thing that could deter a foreign attack on you. Mm-hmm. And now, me, isn't it I, right, Garrett, that the the UN resolutions that say you can't have these missiles are based on the faux scandal over the fake smoking laptop, the Israeli forged smoking laptop about how they were trying to prepare obsolete missiles they don't even have anymore for delivering nuclear warheads that they never were making. Yes, of course. I mean, the the premise of that 2010. United Nations resolution that was going to be the the basis for you know more designations against Iranians uh, was indeed that uh, that the Iranians had a nuclear weapons program and you can never tell maybe they have still have one um, 
but uh, but that has been overtaken by events now because it you know, that UN that UN resolution no longer exists. It ceased to exist on implementation day. So what did they do? They turned around. The Obama administration turned around and came out with new designations based on an entirely different uh, rationale. And and you know it's so. Oh, confusing. I'm sorry. I thought that they had claimed that they were just enforcing the UN resolutions here. Well, you know that I was just about to say that news media reports have in fact suggested that they've suggested an unnamed official has has said that. But Obama, in his remarks uh, the day before yesterday on implementation day um, and about all these recent events, did not say that. On the contrary, he very st- very strongly implied that this move to impose more sanctions against these individuals um, was was simply because we are oppo- we're going to continue to oppose Iran's troublemaking in the region and their ballistic missile program. So it's very clear that they are harking back to uh, a position that they were taking all along, which was that Iran cannot have a ballistic missile program. This is verboten by the United States and its allies. Um, it's an absurd position to take from every point of view. We don't have the power to enforce it. We don't have any way of enforcing it. And at the same time, we have no right to maintain that position. It's, it's just an insult so that insult, to prevent a good day from staying good. It's politically good for the administration to deal with the Israelis and the Saudis. Yeah. And the Republicans. So, you know, it works for them. All right, I'm sorry. I have to mention this and it is something that we've been talking about for 9 years in a row on this show you and me. America has been fighting a war for Iran in Iraq. Since 2003, for 13 years, we've been doing the Ayatollah's bidding in Iraq. And to this day, we got Marines on the ground right now killing people in Ramadi for the greater glory of the Shiite revolution. And then, and, and then we got the entire American war party crying their eyes out all day long, like a little girl who lost their dolly over the slightest Iranian anything. And we still have absolutely no recognition of this in any discussion of Middle East policy whatsoever. Well, I, I'm not sure if you if you actually mean, Scott, that you you believe that they're doing this for the Iranians. I don't think you do. Well, right? not I mean, deliberately because they love the Ayatollah, but they certainly are his ridiculous little tools. No doubt about that. You could make that you could make that argument in the case of the. Uh, of the 2003 invasion. I mean, I, I'd be perfectly prepared to say that that's a perfectly uh, reasonable way to characterize the U.S. policy at that point. But uh, it's not it's not the same today. I mean, you know, after all, the the reason they're doing that is that uh, that ISIS uh, suddenly became this huge, uh, you know, massive political military movement in Iraq. And, you know, they had already you know, basically staked out the whole notion that the United States is is not going to allow Al Qaeda to gain such such uh, a foothold anywhere. And so, again, I, I, I'm sorry, I have to disagree with you. I think that the real reason here, the reasoning is that they they have to do this simply because it's expected of them, because they have pledged they're going to do something about terrorism. Well, I'm not talking about the reasoning. No, no, no. Of course, the reasoning, don't misunderstand me, anybody. The reasoning is never 
boy, we love obeying the Ayatollah Khomeini or Sistani or anything like that. It's just that everything they do is, at least in Iraq, is uh, fighting on the same side as Soleimani and the IRGC. It has been since 03. When did it stop? I guess they took a pause there for a minute, but... It's on the same side, but, I mean, again, I think the fundamental point is that it's all about domestic politics from beginning to end. It's not about Iran at all. It's about domestic politics. That That is certainly the case with the Obama administration. Yeah. Oh, I understand that. I'm not again, I'm not saying that anyone making policy in the U.S. is putting Iran first in their wishes or anything like that. I'm just saying the idea that they're going to sit here and and cry their crocodile tears about Iran all day long when it's the American empire that has done the most. And I'm not talking about the Iran deal. I'm talking about the Iraq and for that matter, the Afghan wars has done the most to secure and enhance Iran's, you know, power and interests in the Middle East, you know, at the very same time, it's kind of intolerable to me. You know what I mean? Somebody has to smack all of these people and say, you're the one who keeps doing the Ayatollah's bidding. So how come you're the same ones crying about him? Just as we have been the ones who have done the most to promote Al Qaeda in the in the Middle East. I mean, of course, it's the same principle, isn't it? Right. We, we use that. We use that constantly as a whipping boy. Uh, to to get more, we meaning the the uh, U.S. national security state uses that uh, threat from Al Qaeda to to get more resources, and at the same time they continue to do everything that uh, you know helps the Al Qaeda and now the uh, Islamic State um, to to gain more to to gain more popularity, more ground. Yep, great. So hey, guess what? Uh, I'm warning you now that uh, you're gonna have to read my book before I submit it to the publisher. I started. Uh, I finished the the proposal yesterday, so it's gonna be a little while. But I'm gonna I'm gonna need a check mark from Gareth before I. Well, congratulations on on getting the manuscript done. Yeah, it turned out once I st- well, it's not the manuscript, but just the proposal. But um, oh, the proposal. Sorry, but it includes you know 14 chapter summaries, and I realized ah, this is easy. I can finish this. You know, <laughs> the only hard part was where to shut up and move on in the th- right. in the summaries. You know. Well, I so. I assume you're going to write a very popular book. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But I'm going to make sure that you make sure it's right before I go show it to anybody else. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for your time again, Gareth. You're the best, man. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye. All right, y'all. That's the great Gareth Porter because this is the Scott Horton Show. Uh, MiddleEastEye.net. Will Iran nuclear deal change U.S.'s Middle East politics? Eh. See you tomorrow.